Today's episode of the Film Stage Show is brought to you by Mubi, the online streaming cinema for your free 30-day trial. Go to mubi.com slash filmstage. I'm only happy when it rains. back ladies and gentlemen to a brand new episode of the film stage show the movie review podcast for the filmstage.com i am your host brian j rowan and with me today we have michael snydell hello hello bill graham hello and our special guest today charles bromesco hey y'all hello charles why don't you tell the people who are listening right now a little bit about yourself Hey there. Uh, I am a freelance critic of both films and television working here in New York. I uh, file a lot of work for The Guardian, for New York Magazine's pop culture website Vulture. I do some work for The New York Times as well. I'm sort of all over the place. All right. Excellent. And we are all gathered here today to talk about Thoroughbreds, a new film starring Anya Taylor-Joy, Olivia Cook, and Anton Yelchin, written and directed by Corey Finley. Uh, before we get into that, the usual top of the show stuff. Follow us on Twitter at Film Stage Show, Facebook, The Film Stage Show. Uh, email us, podcast at thefilmstage.com with your thoughts and comments. Rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. And of course, give to our Patreon, patreon.com slash thefilmstageshow, where as little as $1 an episode will get you access to the Film Stage Show Slack where you can talk with us and other fans of the show. It'll also get you immediately entered into all the fun little raffles we have so you can win super cool movies and movie paraphernalia. Again, that is patreon.com slash thefilmstageshow. And we are brought to you by Mubi, the online streaming cinema, where every day they introduce a new film for you to watch. Uh, great foreign and uh, domestic uh, awesome little indies. Um, great films that you may never be able to see anywhere else. Um, you have 30 days to watch each film, and so you constantly have a rotating selection of 30 films, thus helping you to avoid the age-old problem of Netflix, where you totally are going to watch one of the movies on your list, but you can't find it, you can't figure out what to watch, so instead you just watch 17 hours of Frasier while the world passes you by outside. Uh, some I, movies... I think- I think 17 Hours of Frasier counts as cinema at that point. At that point, <laughs> you've earned the distinction. I am, um, having probably watched Frasier all the way through twice, uh, yeah, I would have to say I hope so. Otherwise, what am, what was I doing with my life during all those times? That is a feat. You should put it on a resume. Look, when you are unemployed, <laughs> you, you, uh, you, gotta, you gotta fill the time. That's what I'll say. It happens. Um... It happens. I'm not proud of it. I don't want to talk about it. Let's get back to movie. Um, <laughs> Are you unemployed again, Brian? Do we have to talk about something else? No, no, no. This was this was last year. I am now happily okay. employed and uh, working on creating a second job for myself. In addition to this, which also, I guess, counts as a job. Um, you do get I'm paid. Gonna, I'm, I'm going to die. <laughs> anyway, movie, who is uh, here helping to bring this show to you. Uh, they've got a series of independent Chinese documentaries coming, often produced against the will of the state and concerning uncharted struggles. Um, their first one is called Three Sisters by Wang Bing. It is a patient, provocative, and deeply compassionate portrait of three provincial young sisters. 
And um, they've also got mimosas, which you can read about. Uh, we featured it on filmstage.com. So if you'd like a free 30 It's too early to be saying mimosas and not actually have physical mimosas. You can't you can't do that to me, Brian. That's true. I'm sorry. I just activated everyone's brunch gene. It's like dumping blood in the water for millennials. Anyway, uh yeah. If you'd like a free 30-day trial of movie, go to MUBI.com slash filmstage and uh get a free 30-day trial on us so that you can understand the wonder that is movie. Um, so that is about that. Uh, I don't really have anything else to talk about. Um, yesterday was St. Patrick's Day. That, so is that, is that why everyone's kind of like in a weird headspace right now? <laughs> I wouldn't say that I did any more drinking yesterday than I do on any other Saturday. Okay. Well, that's good. Yeah. yeah. I, um, I'd say it's, it's just more, it's more strategic drinking is that I had to like be very careful about staying away from bars. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I went to the uh, liquor store, and I was, um, <laughs> they were blasting, like, the Dropkick Murphys, and I was, as an Irishman, I was like, oh, come on, that's, that's so right. stereotypical, <laughs> and then I grabbed a bottle of Irish whiskey that I could drink when I went home and watched The Wind That Shakes the Barley after listening to Irish, like, rebellion songs all day. So, who's the real stereotype here? Well, but I mean, I guess you've, you've earned it. You're allowed to own it. You know, if you're actually Irish, you're entitled to those things. Yeah. But the rest of us poseurs are us once-a-year Irishmen. Yeah. <laughs> it's different. That's true. I can feel happy about that. All yeah. you uh, appropriative Irishmen. <laughs> look, look, we will appropriate anything as long as it requires drinking. As long as it's, I was about Cinco to say, de Mayo. as long as it's fun. <laughs> I, I, and that's the problem. I wish that everyone got really jazzed about like pretending to be Jewish during Hanukkah. Nobody, <laughs> nobody really leans into it that way. I mean, I always wanted to because, like, at Hanukkah, you get to light. What is it, eight eight candles plus the one in the middle? That's freaking awesome. Well, yeah, I mean, it's protracted over eight nights. It's a whole big yeah. hullabaloo. I love it. I'm a big fan. Meanwhile, you're just as a, outing uh, yourself as a pyro there, Brian. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think it's. I think I've people who've listened to this probably know I'm a pyro. But also, like as a Catholic, we have an Advent wreath, but you only get to light one candle every week, and that just becomes like insufferable because it's like, but I want to light it on fire now. <laughs> Anyway, so let's uh, move on to the real reason that we're here, which is to talk about Thoroughbreds, uh, the film from writer-director Corey Finley, starring Anya Taylor-Joy, Anton Yelchin, and Olivia Cooke. Um, This is a movie about two young women living in very upper-class Connecticut who hatch a plan to kill one of their stepfathers. And here is the trailer. I'm being foolish. It's the worst fake crying I've ever seen. She's just using the technique. A what? Technique. Holy... Uh, Amanda, this is my stepdad, Mark. How long are you here, Amanda? My mom's gonna pick me up around midnight. Midnight's late for us. I'll call your mom. She can come pick you up now. She's busy. Doing what? Chemotherapy. I don't have any feelings ever. And that doesn't necessarily right. that is the trailer person. for Thoroughbreds, which is out in theaters now. Let's talk about it. Um Charles, you are our guest, so why don't we start off with you? What are your basic capsule thoughts on Thoroughbreds? 
I am um I'm a great fan, you know. I'm a great fan of this on multiple fronts, both as a proponent of movies with a healthy contempt for the wealthy, movies about uh mo- movies that treat teenage girls with dignity and respect and movies with extreme gallows humor. This this really was suited to me. Um this was this was my jam. All right. Awesome. Michael Snydell, what about your thought? What about yourself? Capture thoughts <laughs> on thoroughbreds. Jeez, Charles sure. really got the capsule thoughts down. Right? Uh, Every one of our guests is so much better at this than you two ever are. Sorry I took all the opinions, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I I thought this was okay, but I, I think that I... I think it's a, a very self-conscious debut in the sense that it it has a very confident visual sense. There's kind of a a certain sense of uh, Corey Finley, the writer director. This is his first feature. Uh, the cinematographer is actually uh, do, 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 do give me a hold for a second. Uh, Lyle Vincent, who uh, also did uh, the Girl Who Walks Alone at Night, and is is someone who has mm. uh, been a DP on a number of. Uh, very visually uh, evocative felt. Um, and so I, this is a film that by the time it ended, it kind of evaporated for me, but I think it's kind of a, a really interesting calling card for the director, but I think I just wanted it to go a little bit further and feel a little less hermetic in how it portrayed the wealthy uh, performances are fine for me, that, but the one person who really surprised me here was Olivia Cook, who I wasn't familiar with other than her being in Me, Earl, and the Dying, Dying Girl, which I've avoided like the plague. She was she was the titular dying girl, as I understand. <laughs> but maybe I shouldn't avoid it like the plague, because I kind of think she's really good in this. So that's kind of my capsule thoughts. <laughs> All right. Bill Graham. Uh. This film is very slight. Uh, I don't think there's a lot to chew on here, and and that's either a good thing or a bad thing. Um, for some people, this is going to be right up their alley. It sounds like it was right up Charles's alley. Um, it was kind of hit or miss for me. Um, I wasn't sure what to expect going into this, but I was entertained. I will mention that. Um, I really enjoyed the soundstage and the score and everything like that. And then I also enjoyed uh, the visual uh, appeal that it had. Um, I like that it doesn't overshow things. Um, you know, there's there's one point where someone mentions in an ergometer, and if you've not, if you don't know what the hell an ergometer is, you have no idea what that is by the end of the movie, which I think is amazing. Um, so yeah, there's. There's a lot going on here, but um, I think it's I think it's fairly slight. But the performances are all fantastic across the board. Um, I immediately got out of this film and thought, "Did I just see a secret uh, Sofia Coppola movie, or was this somebody mm-hmm. else?" So yeah, uh, it's it's slight, but it's enjoyable. I'll say that. Um, I, on the other hand, I I don't know if I'd call it slight. I will call it enjoyable. I very much enjoyed this movie. As a fan of Brett Easton Ellis and just like watching people with immaculate composures crack, um, this movie is right up my alley. Um, I thought that it was also, uh, it's very much like a first movie, 
but the stylization was just totally on point and not overwhelming. I feel like all of the performances were just delightful <laughs> in their in their like attenuated and very well constructed madness. And um yeah, I was on board from from like moment 1 all the way through the the ending. Just a real shocking kind of I don't know. The marketing in this movie <clears throat> really kind of like tries to sell it as something subversive or like just like I, I don't know. I feel like the marketing was a little too extreme for how understated this movie is from time to time. And um, I just wish that they'd had more faith in the film itself. I like because this is just one movie that's just a bunch of cool characters that can get a huge laugh off of just not saying something for a fraction of a second longer than they ought to. Uh, but in general, yeah, I, I, I loved this movie. Um, I wouldn't say like, it's going to be top 10 material, but this is definitely probably a movie that I would watch more often than I'd watch anything that is in my top 10. If that makes sense. Mm. Mm. I'm not sure what that Uh, says about you, Brian. (laughs) Well, my my top 10 films are always like, Oh, this is important. And it's probably seven hours long. And, but like, you know, more often than not, at the end of the long day of, of working and fathering, I'm just going to want to kick on something and watch like an immaculately like wardrobed and made up Anya Taylor-Joy staring into the camera as she contemplates murder. <laughs> that just sounds like more of a fun time to me. It's interesting that you mentioned uh, the marketing because uh, the trailer for the old, what is it, like 90s, 80s movie Heathers played before this, uh, I guess uh, they're going to be playing it at the Alamo again some at some time in the future. And so I was like, oh, look at that, Heathers playing in front of this movie. Interesting. I something that um oh I'm I'm sorry I didn't mean to interrupt. Oh, um, this is totally off off point. This I was is just gonna all say, I, got a, I got a trailer for Tully before this movie, so I don't know what the hell they're doing. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, I, no, I got a I got a trailer for Tully and Hereditary as well. So, um, anyway, but the the thing I was curious about is that now two of us now who were really in support of this movie, how we chose to phrase this is that it was very much up our alley, which gets me thinking. Um, for those of us who have not been as taken with this film, is it a matter of believing that the film fails in what it is trying to do or that it succeeds in what it is trying to do, but that the, the film's opponents find that to be a distasteful or, or unworthy sort of goal for the movie to have? I don't know. I think in, in this stage where we've come in cinema, I think you really have to be a, a smart intelligent skewering of of the class to be this indebted to the class that you're skewering and so i i feel like this film you know i i mentioned sofia coppola in both high regard and also you know a lot of people know what she does right she she specifically does the white upper class and this film is all about white upper class and i just don't know if i'm in the headspace to be able to enjoy a film about the white upper class right now it feels like there's so much going on but that's so beyond weird to me that because this this film is <sighs> sophia coppola looks at the white upper class kind of like a like an anthropologist would and this yeah. movie is just disdainful of them 
it's disdainful of them, but it's it's also got a, a female protagonist that's rolling around in a Range Rover and and is threatened by uh, what school she's going to be going post post high school. Right, enough so, to murder someone. <laughs> sure, that's the disdain. It's, I, I, I like like I, I get I, I get that Brian, but um, this is a movie that that I I just recently had to sit down with, and so I I don't know if I've had the time to properly see how we're skewering things in the way that it is. Um, it's it, my brain just doesn't work quite that way. Um, right. well, I'm sure uh, I'm going to be I'm going to be reading some reviews and hearing your opinions and kind of seeing where this film kind of rightly gets off and and goes down that alley. Right, well, let's see what Michael has to say. I think for me, it's uh, less a case of uh, it not being up my alley because uh, <laughs> I I do love portrayals of sociopathic upper crust uh, shitheads. Uh, <laughs> and I, I guess what it is for me is that I was constantly, uh, I was constantly feeling that there was a lack of color in the fringes of this movie. I, in the sense that, you know, you get one scene, for instance, that takes place at a party, but otherwise the lion's share of this movie takes place at, one girl's mansion. And I just felt like if this really wanted to say something larger about the wealthy, uh, I, I needed more than just this single female relationship. Um, I think the single female relationship on its own as well is well performed for the most part. I, I have, I have some, um, qualifications about Anya Taylor joy in this, but I think don't you it's dare. Also <laughs> in this movie, Phil. I, but what I what I'll say is that I think that their relationship. I was cont- I was. Uh, I keep saying aware. Um, I was very much seeing a like opposite dichotomies with their characters in a way that kept reminding me that this movie was pushing forward without feeling like it did have that like larger sense of what it means to be wealthy and it was weird that even like in the past couple weeks i watched like cruel intentions and i weirdly thought that was a better movie about uh about specifically teens who are trying to feel something like i just think that there's something a little bit too too focused in a way that makes this feel like very stylistically uh yeah, confident again and very um, – like it knows exactly – or it's doing exactly what it wants to do. But also I just wanted it to to work as a larger satire. I needed more than simply that relationship and more than simply the relationship with their stepfather, which I thought was also just a little bit thin but also pretty funny. Well, first of all, it's it's unfair to to compare this to Cruel Intentions, the greatest <laughs> film ever made by human hands. Um, I'll say, oh you know, <laughs> for me personally, um, this movie had a lot in common with a film that I love that I don't know if any of y'all have seen called In the Company of Men. Is that Mammoth? No, that's uh, Laboot. Oh, Laboot. Okay. I can I can see how you could get them confused. Uh, though. Uh, um, <laughs> 
Yeah, it it is a movie that is literally about just two terrible men attempting to destroy the life of a deaf woman. Um, as oh, like Jesus. as revenge for all the times that they have been humiliated by other women, it is. It is. It, I'm I'm surprised that, that movie hasn't had like a dramatic like revival in this the moment of like Me Too and toxic masculinity because it is talking about everything that we've been talking about recently, and it did it like mm, oh god I want to say 20 years ago but that also really bums me out so I'm gonna hope that it's not true. Um, in the Company of Men, 1997. Yep, 21 years ago. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, moving on. Um, and that is also a movie that involves two upper-middle-class white people having a lot of conversations, a lot of like openly hostile, mean conversations. One of them appears to be the alpha. Um, and also, it's got the, uh, the, crazy, the crazy music in the background, because we haven't really talked about it yet. But this movie... Has a lot of mm, percussive uh-huh. beats going on, uh, just there's like some, in the company of yes. men. There's they some would actually be concretes in here. <laughs> I'm sorry, what was that? There's some musique concrete in here. <laughs> oh yeah. So I, I don't know. For me, as a person, like I said, who loves in the company of men, who loves the kind of hateful cutting appraisals of the white upper class that we get from the likes of Brett Easton Ellis. I mean, this movie. It's just like I want to do the chef kiss with the fingers when it was over <laughs> like i really want i like i like laid back in my seat and i was like you know that's that's spicy meatball like that's 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 what I'm <laughs> and it's weird to call it slight because like i don't know i there's well, I something think... there's something to be said for me personally just about like a really well constructed movie that sets out to do one thing well and and does it well I think we we say slight. We have to keep in mind that this is a debut independent feature. I think it's not a coincidence that most of it is set in one extremely lavishly appointed house. Sure. Um, And Mm -hmm. so, I mean, I don't think that it's necessarily fair for us to lower the bar or anything, but I think it definitely explains why there might be, you know, a smaller sense of of scale. I don't know if that's quite what you're looking for, you know, when you say that you wish that it had um, expanded wider. I don't know. Well, one of the other interesting things is that, like, these are both women who have, through their various uh, choices in life, uh, become isolated. Um, One of them is awaiting trial for animal cruelty, and the other has been expelled from her tawny uh, private academy, I guess is the way to put it. And they've they've both kind of, like, cloistered themselves, which allows them to harden into these people who might be capable of murder. So some of that might be thematically important as well. I, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I just sorry. I want to briefly respond to what Charles uh, says. I, 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 you are right. I, in no way, I'm, and I'm, tr- am I trying to lower, uh, lower that it? You know, they do have budget constraints and, and things along those lines. I think it's. I, I'm not expecting that this is going to be a you know a comprehensive you know overview or, or survey of the upper middle class or, or anything along those or upper class in this case, but um, I think that there is still uh, by as Brian's saying like the thing that he finds so refreshing about this that it is about one thing is exactly what uh, held me back from like finding this a more interesting portrait. Like, I, I don't know. Like, I, I think specifically of that, 
the opening scene. I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to briefly describe the opening scene. No, I mean, it's literally the opening scene. Sure. The opening scene has one character uh, played by Olivia Cook uh, walking slowly through an old friend's uh, mansion and just like looking around and, you know, just taking in all of these details that honestly, I think say more about these people than much of the rest of this movie. Like I, it's, I I think that this, I, again, I think it's weird to say, I, I think it's uh, getting into a point of saying that this movie didn't give me what I wanted and that gets dangerous because, you know, it, it was made exactly the way it was. Well, they but say I um, think, cinema is the pervert's art in that it instructs you on what you want. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sure. And apparently what I want <laughs> is uh, more uh, is a larger group of rich people. <laughs> Michael Being wants incredibly as many unsatisfied white people <laughs> as you can fit into a single movie. Speaking of me too, <laughs> <laughs> Michael's Greatness. just like looking at at a, a Russian novel, and he's like, "Not enough rich white people in this." God damn it! <laughs> uh, I, I do I do want to mention that that opening sequence because I I found it really fascinating and and really hilarious and kind of what it does. Um, there's a moment where one of the characters this film opens with with Olivia Cook being invited into this opulent house, and um, she is invited in by a housekeeper and the housekeeper disappears to go find Lily Anya Taylor joys character. And throughout the entire sequence, she's yelling Lily, Lily over and over and over as she's kind of like exploring the upstairs while Amanda, who's played by uh, Olivia cook is exploring the downstairs area. And so like every I don't know, 30 seconds or so while this like three minute sequence happens, <laughs> you just hear Lily and you're just like, how big is this fucking place that you can lose a person, you know, and it, it does that. And then there's another sequence kind of just shortly after that where someone leaves a bag of potato chips out on a counter <laughs> and and someone else was like, don't worry about it. And literally it's kind of like smash cuts to behind that character and the housekeeper like zipping by grabbing the potato chip bag and like putting it away and you're just like oh okay i see i see what it's doing and i and i'm into the kind of rhythms that it's setting up it's setting up that there's basically ghost people that like walk around this place and like take care of everything yeah, and so if you leave out a potato chip housekeeper with the potato chips it's like it's like you would see in a ghost story it's like, yeah. oh, just leave that there. And then they start walking away and suddenly it's like, ooh. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's brilliant and kind of what it's basically attempting to do is that, like, this Lily character obviously gives two shits about, like, putting things away and, like, being where she's kind of supposed to be or, you know, being in some kind of easy-to-find place. 
and it's you know like you can clearly hear her name being called out and it's not like she yells up to the housekeeper and is like i'm here i'm downstairs don't worry about me no she's just gonna let her housekeeper just run rummage around the upstairs just like where the fuck is this girl <laughs> to that point it's this is another movie that um really appreciates the way that sound travels in old wooden houses yes Yes. Again, with that ergometer kind of sequence and and how it kind of sets up and is played out, I love, I love just the sound of that machine. What's and funny was, to me I was is thinking this, of, as someone who used to row crew, I heard that and I was like, mm-hmm. oh, he's rowing an erg. Mm-hmm. And it becomes yeah. such a huge part of the movie. This that's like, the that's the cool lingo rowing an erg. He's working on the erg. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No one calls it an ergometer. Yeah. My God. I wish I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to fit in really well around the other rowers now. You want to talk about affluent white people. Michael, you should get on a rowing team. It is nothing but affluent white people. Oh, Jesus. Well, that's kind yes, of what tall. I liked about the movie is that it's able to telegraph wealth in these like very, very lived in sort of ways. Like, yeah, that rowing is the sport of the rich or that like drinking juice is something that like you'd have to be rich to think is a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> there is just there is just like, that don't great see him, shot like, waving around oh, oh, money or whatever, but it gets to the fact that being extremely wealthy is also heinously tacky. <laughs> like that well, freaking I, I spa lo- they go to. Yeah. Oh, oh Jesus. Uh gross. Mm, mm. Anyway, Michael, you were going to say Uh I don't remember what I was going to say. Uh I, I think That's I was okay. just going to say, say something else. In terms oh. of, uh, no, I, what I want to say is briefly in terms of sound design, I did like how parts of this feel like a modern reinvention of like the telltale heart. <laughs> like mm-hmm. uh, even before, you know, anything macabre happens, like it, it seems like a lot of the sound design is very clearly like uh, trying to Edgar play Island. into that. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, we could, we'll, we'll. I guess I guess we can talk about it in spoilers. Um, speaking of which, who would like to get into spoilers? Um, oh wait, before we do that, let's talk about Anton Yelchin. Yes, absolutely. I was about to mention him. Um, I feel like that. This is about to bring me into spoiler territory. If we're going to discuss him, I just want to. I just was was everyone like? Did it for me? It kind of. I like. I was happy to see this movie because, like, hooray! You know, another Anton Yelchin performance. But also, it kind of. It just made me. It made me miss him even more. You know? I, d- I didn't know he was in this. And so when he showed up on screen, I was like, oh, shit. Okay, nice. I, um, so, I, I did know he was in this going in. What I was not prepared for is the fact that his character spends so much time talking about what a bright future he's going to have. <laughs> I know. Oh, oh, you're Jesus. killing me here. Yeah. Oh, God. That really uh, that that was very hard to watch. Um, I really loved him a lot as an actor. I had been he had been dubbed my celebrity doppelganger, which I always found very flattering. Um, <laughs> I was very bummed to see him go and I see this movie, and he's in a supporting role. But it's um, it's the kind of thing that you feel like 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 a Philip Seymour Hoffman esque type supporting performance where mm-hmm. there's an entire world behind the small glimpse into it that we get. He's like you're talking about one... uh, his his performance in Twister, right? Yeah, exactly. No, of course. <laughs> that is the Er Hoffman performance. Yes. Um Yeah, no, Anton Yelchin in this. He's he's like the one he's the one character that like you maybe have a little bit of empathy for that's like oh that poor guy. It's um and just the way that he acts in every scene is just 
<sighs> it really, yeah, like and like you said, how he keeps talking about what a bright future he has. I'm just like, man, come on. Hmm. Maybe, and mm. also, I mean, the thing I like, another reason that this movie totally plays to me, I'm a big fan of movies about the suburbs, and especially, you know, the specific experience of the suburbs. Like, I can remember the first time I was ever invited to, like, a really rich person's house, and I realized that rich people are not the same as regular people. <laughs> and, like, I can remember, like, being at a party and, like, the one weird older guy who, like, wanted to get everyone high. Like, these are um, things that feel very real to me, and they help make the story, which would otherwise feel very sort of accented, um, more more real to me. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Michael, any thoughts on Anton Yelchin? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I, I think Charles and... You, Brian, both covered it in the sense that he just, uh, yeah, he, again, kind of drifts into a lot of these movies and some of his career. It's it's kind of funny how much better he is than the rest of the movie, but he just kind of really disappears into these roles and is just kind of, and I'm not sure how much I'm projecting this, you know, uh, with the bittersweetness of him being gone, but there's just a, a sense of you feel lighter when he comes into a movie and i absolutely felt that when he he came into this movie even as he's kind of playing like without spoilers like kind of a dirtbag character like a dirtbag you know philosopher character a little bit and in, in how he talks about his future and and uh, you know exaggerating his uh <laughs> how he helps the community around him <laughs> like there's just a yeah there, again as kind of charles was saying there is something very lived in even about his character that goes beyond those details about you know uh what someone's rich or sorry what a rich person's life looks like in the minute to minute He's also got this great reoccurring thing where every time he talks about when he's going to be like running this town, he he subtly ups the amount of time it's going to take. Because <laughs> for a while it's five years, and then at a certain point he's like, in ten ten years, yeah, I'm going to have a car mm-hmm. like your dad. He's like decade and a half. I'm going to be <laughs> yeah. Look, definitely before retirement. <laughs> well, um, if we're if I I really consider him to be a key component of the movie, but I I think I can only explain why if we're ready to move into the, the spoiler territory. Yes, I, I agree. Yep, um, I just yeah. wanted to get away our our, no, our, sure, our yeah. little thoughts about him, considering um, the tragedy. Um, so yeah, let's uh, let's do it. Let's get into spoilers. We're gonna spoil the shit out of Thoroughbred. So if you haven't seen it, get out, check it out. It's in theaters now, and uh, we're gonna spoil it. It's Charles. Um, but yeah, you know, obviously he becomes a casualty of these two women. Uh, he really gets the short end of the stick. And I think that's that's what's so important is that this is not an unambiguously positive story about like two girls who like rise up to, you know, defeat a man. Um, we are made to be very suspicious of their motives and means. You know, the fact that Anya Taylor-Joy really only moves to take action against Paul Sparks after he threatens to cut off her allowance does not seem incidental to me. I think that these are not the most considerate people who have ever lived and the way they end up treating Anton Yelchin, who's a scuzzy character, but ultimately a, a well-intentioned guy who just wants to sell his drugs and make a few dollars. I, I, I've always considered drug dealing to be a very honest business. However, um, the fact that he is sort of left in their wake speaks to the fact that 
um, as much as these two girls are a victim of being wealthy, they're also wealthy. And the fact is that they treat people with disregard the way that rich people tend to. Mm. Yeah, and, I, I, and they're they're users and abusers, right? They, yes, uh, you know, j- just like kind of kind of the housekeeper sequence and stuff like that. They they have people that flit in and out of their lives that they don't really take much much stock in. And he's definitely someone that they pull into their lives. You know, um, he's not intruding on them. They're intruding on him. And, you know, even to the point where they like fucking track him down and he's just like, how did you find me? <laughs> and it's just like, oh, yeah, they uh, they had to research and like ask around and, you know, actually do a lot of this stuff. And, you know, I think one thing before we move too far and, and Mike, I know you were about to jump in and I'll let no, you I'm good. continue. Go ahead, but um, <laughs> I do I do think it. It's unfortunate that we didn't quite mention as much uh, of of the, I guess the psychopathy. I'm I'm not even sure what to call it. Um, the the disorder that kind of Olivia Cook has, um, and we didn't quite kind of play that up enough. I don't think in in kind of the non spoiler section, but I think that obviously has kind of you know intertwines a lot with with Anya Taylor Joy's character in how much maybe they both do not have that kind of uh feeling of remorse and things like that and how much of that is it just being white upper class that you know you're kind of born and raised in this way or how much of it is just internal and you know maybe maybe Anya Taylor-Joy hasn't quite realized that she doesn't feel the way other people do as well, you know? And especially by the end, I think it's interesting because she seems pretty damn happy and and upbeat, and she's obviously doing good in her schooling, and we also find out that she was doing good in her schooling around the time of her father's, her, her real father's passing as well. And it's kind of like, holy shit, okay, that's a weird time to be doing good in school. Bill, that, that does kind of, that does lead me into, uh, like, one thing I kind of wanted to talk about a, a little bit uh, with all of you. The one thing I do really think this movie uh, or I guess to me was the most interesting part was its relationship to empathy as like I, it, it to the point where even they are mentioning empathy in the script that there's a point where Paul Sparks who plays Anya Taylor-Joy uh, Lily's stepfather mm-hmm. uh, where he in one of a number of kind of patronizing lectures uh, tell, tells her in the kitchen that um, I think this is actually the, the moment where her allowance is cut off. Uh, going back to what you were saying, Charles. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, threatened, threatened. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Threatening yeah, to cut off like, her allowance. You know, you're off my payroll. <laughs> but uh, speaking specifically of that a moment there, uh, there's a, a really interesting kind of thread of empathy in terms of when you consider uh, early on where they are, where Olivia Cook's character is literally saying that she's performing empathy in the sense that she's making herself cry. And like that is threaded throughout the entire movie in the sense that over and over, uh, there is a question in their friendship of how much is genuine and how much is just because they're trying to pass the time. So, so the fact that not only is there 
are, are their roles slowly changing between uh, Olivia Cook's character and Amanda Anya Taylor Joy's character by the end, but also how the movie is both like directly and indirectly trying to kind of challenge that. Like uh, there, there does seem like there are multiple layers there, um, in in a way that I did find kind of fascinating. So does that? I guess I'm curious. Is is that something that you wish it had kind of gone into more? I'm no, still that's kind of trying to root out like your the dissatisfaction that you had in a way with this movie. <laughs> well, I um I I guess it's only tangentially related, but the the thing that I got hung up on before, I think you used the word hermetic, is that right? Did I, I remember did. that correctly? Yes. Yeah, I actually um could you expand on that a little bit because I think that's something I also observed, but that is something I actually thought was really that that's something I liked about the film, something I thought that that fit. Um could you speak more about that? Same here. Yeah, sure. Uh I I think that I'm referring to I, – I used hermetic as a, a negative because I, I think that, again, I was just always conscious of the camera movements and the ways that this is trying to be attuned to the space. And it was something I appreciated on a surface level, but it was also something that continually took me out of the movie to the point where the dialogue felt totally secondary – uh, at most times for me. Um, and I, I think I had difficulty finding a lot of their interactions as more than uh, set dressing. I, 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 I'm now trying to, I, I saw this really late at night, so I'm trying to unpack exactly <laughs> wh- where I'm trying to go here. But, um, yeah, I, I, again, I think the, when I used hermetic, it's just how dialed in the rest of the visual sense, the very like ostentatious, you know, pans, the rack focuses, just the camera movement in here was very distracting to me in a way that I think <laughs> took away from the possibility that this world existed outside and paired with the fact that I don't think that this does enough with these two characters um, on a on a writing level of who they are as people um, in how to differentiate them enough. Like, I, I guess I'd specifically go back to Anya Taylor-Joy. Her Lily, uh, her, her character Lily felt um, – it, she didn't feel defined to me in the way, the same way as Oliver uh, Olivia Cook, and I understand that's partly because Olivia Cook is meant to be a sociopath, so her <laughs> delivery is very emphatic. It, it is very like uh, stylized and affected, and Lily is supposed to be a more traditionally, you know, uh, socially understood character, but. It was that relationship that didn't feel, I, I guess, uh, meaty enough. Again, I don't want to get into the slight or thin conversation. See, that's other I, than to say that uh, I, I needed something more than this larger plot about trying to kill the stepdad and their relationship. But then, aren't I, you just creating an entirely different movie? 
Yeah, you know, to be to be honest, I think I am there with you. I, I, maybe I, that's what I'm not trying to do. Because um, to me, <clears throat> just to kind of like sure. expound on what you're saying. Um, so Amanda's like your typical Hannibal Lecter type sociopath who's just like, I don't feel anything. I can do whatever I need to do because, hey, what does it matter? So when she talks about killing uh, Lily's father, it's it's sort of in a, a utilitarian sense of just like, he seems mm-hmm. like a shitty person. You're not happy. Why don't we just uh, why don't we just kill him? It'll be easy. And Lily doesn't really get on board until she's threatened. So Lily is more of like the the opposite problem. She she feels too much. She can't express herself properly, so she hides behind like a veneer of respectability. And when that all breaks down, she becomes like a caged animal. And so it really becomes <sighs> at once like a battle of wills towards a similar goal of just like who's going to come out on top this person who's capable of common rational thought or this person who is like striking out at everything around her and to me that that was more interesting because lily you know at some point very clearly has like the other side of the coin as far as what amanda has um, well, that's, um, yeah, I think the movie sort of pushes these girls into each other's lives at the time when they both need each other most. They really provide each other with the emotional forces that the other is lacking. Like, Lily d- is not a woman of action, and so the fact that Amanda comes into her life at this time when she's really up against the wall is is kind of like a godsend, and the converse being that Amanda is almost completely estranged from her more human nature, and then Lily comes back and like gives her a person that she can actually start to have have some kind of feelings about, even if she she in the movie might not quite understand what they are. I, I think that those. <sighs> Those uh, relationships are articulated within the dialogue, and I understand that one character is supposed to be, I feel nothing, I feel everything. In fact, they tried to literally sell me a shirt when I bought the tickets for this of those. uh, They are, as some type of promotional material, they are selling shirts that say, I feel nothing, and I feel everything. I have to, that is not, oh my god. (laughs) Yes. Wow. What the wow. Hell, where the hell did you see this? Uh the arc lights. <laughs> that is the strangest. I have I have, that is I have a gotten very... a lot of things for movies, but never a shirt that was just like <laughs> Wow. The strangest fucking that thing is a, I've ever heard. I feel like, like if you walk out of the terrible your first shirt. instinct is that you want to buy that awesome shirt, maybe you did not understand the significance of the film. <laughs> you might I, it was zero dollars with eight dollars shipping and handling. Suffice to say, Wait, so they didn't even have a box of shirts there. No, 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 no. It was when we bought online. They're like, oh my like, god, get this shirt. <laughs> oh, I gotcha, I gotcha. That is the wow. dumbest fucking thing I've ever heard. Um, uh, okay. Anyways, my po- I swear I had a point. <laughs> every movie, right, anyway, every movie uh, should have a shirt that you can buy when you buy tickets to the film that just bluntly describes. You should have seen the Son of Saul t-shirts. They were brutal. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Jesus. I survived the Sonder Commando, and all I got was this stupid t-shirt. The shape shape of water one is the the girl and the fish monster. 
And the girl is like, outsiders deserve love too. And the fish monster is just like, eggs. <laughs> anyway, um, Michael, you were going to yeah, say. Yeah, no, I, 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 I had points. Um, yeah, so anyways, besides that shirt. Uh, okay, so I understand that that, that uh, relationship, that dynamic is articulated in the film. But I think the problem is I read specifically Anya Taylor-Joy's performance and line reading as more tentative than actually uh, communicating that idea of her being unable to handle her emotions. I understand that, like, on a schematic level, there are a few different points in this film where she where she does things emotionally, but those very much felt like anomalies to me. And this is strange because I really like Anya Taylor-Joy. I thought she was one of the best parts of Split uh, and, and The Witch and other things. I can't remember, but I think that honestly, that is, it is the ostentatiousness of the uh, cinematography and Anya Taylor-Joy's performance that is what doesn't make this dynamic work for me. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that I was consistently distracted by that lack of definition. And what makes this even more complicated is that's partly by design. But I don't think that design works for me because I don't think I like that performance specifically. Does that make slightly more sense? Yeah, it definitely, it it makes sense. I am not inclined to agree, but I do definitely (laughs) understand what you mean. I I feel like what you say or what what you see as ostentatiousness, I see as like distinction. I'm very pleased to see that we've got a young American filmmaker who knows how to operate a camera and isn't afraid to let us know that. Um, I, I do think that there are some cases of first film itis in this, but for the most part, I, I am just happy to see someone trying this hard. I think it reminded me a little bit of uh, Trey Edward Schultz. Uh, yeah, another first film I love very much, Cresha. Sure. Right? Yeah, no, I, I really like, I really like Cresha, uh, and I know that is a film that I've definitely heard people say they don't like the formal choices in, but I think that works for me because it was a single headspace that we were in. And I felt like it reflected her disorientation in a very personal, like purposely myopic way. And I think, I, I think it comes down to, or, or sorry, it comes down to not only the um, formal choices, but also the structural choices. I'd, I'd like to to briefly switch gears a little bit. What do you guys make of the chapter structure? Wait. Chapter structure. The fact Did I entirely that, forget yeah, this? The, the were there intertitles or something? Yeah, there were. Yes, yes there were. There are oh, five wow. chapters, yes. I am going to say that I repressed that because I cannot stand <laughs> that shit. I actually Sad. forgot that I was in the movie because I so detest that as a concept. <laughs> I didn't, um... I didn't mind it. It's actually, weirdly, another thing that reminded me of uh, In the Company of Men. Because they also had intertitles. I can't recall precisely what they were. I think it was like weeks. And um, can y'all can y'all was, can y'all tell me how to screenshot something real quick on the on the Apple? I have yeah, it's uh, Command Shift Three. Command Shift Three. Okay, cool. I'm gonna send you a picture of of those fucking T-shirts because I had to. Oh, I had to God. look that up. <laughs> Please. Yeah. 
<laughs> I am going right. to make them a part of this podcast. Um, yes. What was I going to say? Forward. Oh, yeah. In the Company of Men had the same thing. Um, the only time you ever need intertitles is if you are jumping around in chronology. If you're going uh, back great. and forth and back and forth, that is okay. Otherwise, you're just – why? Why do you need them? Why bother? I kind of liked know. it in um, the latest bomb back as like kind of a joke on the like – you know, pretentiousness of right, sure. chapters. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a weird choice. I didn't mind it. Um, there's something kind of like, uh, I don't know the correct word that I'm looking for. It's, it's not, it's like maybe cheeky or, or funny or I, I wow. I'm sorry. Really... Um, you neglected to mention that these t-shirts are brought to us by betches. Yeah, I, I don't know what that, that is. <laughs> oh boy! Uh, I'm sorry. You were really in the middle of saying something, and I just um, I'm sorry. But it's, it's okay. It's, we can it's, only it's talk really... about this now. <laughs> this is I, my. I, I, I didn't like this movie. Apparently, up this t-shirt company betches. I, uh, yeah, uh, it, it is. It is so interesting that like this is a free t-shirt that you have to pay like nine dollars shipping for it's just yeah, like it's crap <laughs> yeah, that sounds like an internet scam <laughs> it's like was... a drop shipping thing it's like yeah you oh, get a free well, watch and, Guys, and this, this is definitely through this website fandango uh. this is this is definitely through fandango because it's i tried to go to the thoroughbreds like official site and there's no like promotional material on there about like free t-shirts and so this is definitely through like fandango is running this vip kind of thing and like all of this kind of consumerism before seeing a movie just really (laughs) fucking bothers me i've I've never understood it because star wars is insane in in this direction where you know all of this merchandise and all of this stuff to the point where there's even like minor spoilers in like what kind of merchandise comes out um and so like people just consume it way before they see it and it just bothers me so much where i'm just like guys Y'all haven't seen the movie. You can't be a fan of the movie. You can't be a fan of that character. This like, is something I said. I mean, um, I, I liked Black Panther quite a bit. Uh, but the people who were like rabid for Black Panther months out, I was like, what if the movie turns out to be terrible? <laughs> Just think yeah. about all the people who like were super excited to buy that cabbage dragon from Wrinkle in Time who then went and saw the movie. Um, I'm really psyched to say that I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, oh yeah, I'm well, very pleased to not know that. I'm I'm uh, super excited for you, um, guys. I might have like come around on this tie-in because I, I'm looking at the what? Betches. I'm what? looking at the Betches <laughs> website, and they have a shirt that says "Ice Coffee and Spinning and Sushi," and I'm on a juice cleanse. So this, I, I'm assuming, is also Thoroughbreds merchandise. A lot of levels. And also, I'm not a psycho is a t-shirt on their website. So, so they just have, they, they, they're like Hasbro, but for Thoroughbreds. Apparently. <laughs> this is, just this like, is a multi-vertical money-making machine. Wait, so Betches is a lifestyle and pop culture thing? I that, feel like this is oh set boy. up by Anton Yelchin's character in the movie. Like he's like, I'm this going is... to run this block, and this is his this is his idea. I feel like this is this who what's his name? The director Corey Finley. I feel yeah. like this is his yeah, this is his MLM. Like his on... multi-level marketing <laughs> multi-level. going on right now. 
I'm on Betches.com. I'm not in the shop. I'm on the blog section. Uh, <laughs> I love that we went down this path. That will get you off. <laughs> oh my god! You just workout leggings you need right now. I need those, guys. There's an iPhone case that says "dead inside." <laughs> oh my god! I'm so confused. I feel like this is a situation where I feel like if I was an actual sociopath, I would be. I would take this personally. I think I would probably be pretty mad about this. Also, <laughs> someone's I'm, marketing. Someone's, someone's making money off of your disorder. This person has a shirt on that says "Just take the fucking picture." There's a good shirt. I like that. And the rest of this podcast uh, is just going to be us uh, saying what we're seeing on the Betches website. <laughs> oh, I actually like this. This, this uh, iPhone cover says, what fresh hell is this? Yeah. This shirt says, I'm drunk, which is good. I'm confused. I, I'm, I like I'm this one that confused. says, so you agree? You think you're really petty? Question mark. Oh, Do boy. fun shit here for the wrong reasons. I came, I saw, I left early. Okay, anyway. Okay, right, uh, right. I think at a certain point, we are actually just shilling for Betches.com. Uh, today's episode brought to you by Betches. If you want to tell people that you don't give a fuck and you feel nothing, Betches.com for all of your great, great need. Again, that's for all of your nihilist t-shirts. Yeah, it's uh, it, okay. So what? Uh, what it feels like is that Betches is like a lifestyle blog for like the hip. Urban uh, it's, it's like woman. It's like the punk goop is what I'm talking. <laughs> yeah, and they 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 teamed up with Thoroughbreds to 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 do this. Some is like stuff. um. I think here's the thing is that marketing movies now and and I can we can tie this back into something real uh, that marketing <laughs> we don't need to so strange in order to drum up enthusiasm for really any type of release even if it's not you know the A24 Spring Breakers type release which is a fun you know really goofy thing to advertise I'm I'm thinking back to um the campaign behind the Beguiled remake from last year where it was mm, like mm-hmm. they kept tweeting hashtag vengeful bitches oh, that's and I was right. like you're making yeah. the movie sound um, very different than it is I think a lot of movies aren't really lent to viral hashtag campaigns uh, that, <laughs> that being one of them and this is another thing that really is not well suited to the novelty t-shirt and yet was, here we um, are was was the Beguiled A24 no, that was um. I want to say Fox. So okay, so this is my this is my thing. <laughs> so this is focus features. Eight this is yeah, focus features. I'm is sorry. really great with stuff like that because like the lobster, they had the like which animal would you should you be, and right. um, what was the other one? They uh, the had, ghost um, story. Yeah, they had the ghost story, the ghost store, and there was the oh the witch where you could make like a picture of yourself as like in the style of the Black Phillip things. <laughs> And like mm-hmm. those are slightly on brand and they're fun and they get a lot of engagement. And so now I think all of these other people like Focus exactly Features right. and, and Fox Searchlight are like grabbing the wrong end of the social media <laughs> stick. Yeah, it's it's putting the cart before the horse, I think. It's, it's yeah. the idea that the movie doesn't really dictate how it should be sold to the public when that is exactly how it works. Um, yeah. That's what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like movies like like the Beguiled. Well, you also think A24 releases a lot of movies. And something Moonlight is easy to stand for, even though it's a very I think more stone faced movie because there's a lot to get behind and a lot to feel good about it. But something like American Honey, the way they advertised that was like it was never like which of these poor addicts are you? <laughs> like that's um, <laughs> Take it's, it's tough when they're selling more somber <laughs> movies, which is not something that um, A24 uh, is always trying to do. I don't know. 
Where was this film picked up at? Was it picked up at uh, at Sundance or was it Are we picked up already? This was yeah, uh, Thoroughbreds yeah. was Sundance 2017. Okay, so it was picked yeah. up last year. Correct. Okay, huh. and it was yeah. It was picked up, but I think they really felt that this one should be a spring release, which I agree. I think that was a smart move. Um, but yeah, it's been kicking around for a minute. It seems like it's yeah. Nat Faxon and Jim Rash were executive producers. Right. Yeah. Jim mm-hmm. Rash, also known as the Dean on Community. Yeah. Yes, exactly. absolutely. Nat Faxon, also known as uh, one episode party down character <laughs> Garland Greenbush. <laughs> I like how you just knew that off the top of your head. I love Party Down so much. There was only like 20 episodes, so it's really easy to watch all of them. It's true. That's another one uh, yeah, that I no, lost I, He also, uh, he was in that, that TV show on Fox that didn't last long. Uh, it was called oh, yeah. Ben and Kate, I want to say. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But like, your boy is good. It was called Ben and Kate, yes. Yeah. Um, but no, yeah. The, actually, so Corey Finley wrote this. He wanted to produce it for the stage, but Jim Resch and Nat Faxon apparently got a hold of the script somehow, and they saw it as a screen project. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah. See, this might, work, that, um, this might work better for me on the stage. There's a great feature about the making of the film over at IndieWire. Corey Finley was a theater director. He had never been on a film set before his first day directing a film set. <laughs> That's impressive. It's pretty wild. And I think, I don't know, I mean, uh, for a movie that makes such agile, active use of the camera, it's very surprising that he comes from the stage. He's sure. also not afraid to get the camera right up in a person's face. The man knows how to work mm-hmm. a close-up. Yeah, no, I yeah. Um, I love this movie so much. <laughs> I think he has a really yeah, great no, understanding of body language too. Like, like there's a, a great shot uh, that I'm thinking of out of context, but it's a kind of close-up of uh, a necklace. And there's a, a number of insert shots like this where it's like just uh, small windows of you know the two women's bodies. All right, you know what? As I say that, that sounds. Bad, but um, I, I just mean that they're I, I, again. It, it's attuned to body language and a certain sense of like uh, the form of the body in a way that I did find appealing. And I'm just full of contradictions today. <laughs> <laughs> um, so mm. I wanted to ask uh, what we all felt about the ending and just the way the story actually like wraps up. I think that that last scene is really that's the standout when she's on the couch the whole thing we get in background noise and then she comes back uh, the suggestion of violence I've always thought is so much more effective than actual violence and so I thought that, that was a nice little like a uh, little grace note there yeah there's um like you know if I'm watching a John Hillcoat movie odds are I'm there for the violence um, sure but yeah. in a movie like this I think that you know, every time they brought up the horse and then there were pictures of the horse mm. and they would cut back to the horse. And I was like, please don't show me the horse. And they didn't. And yeah, this is a this is a movie that's obsessed with sterility and, and cleanliness. You know, you see these like almost aggressively clean compositions. It wouldn't make sense to to see that kind of thing. It would it would be really sure. out of joint with the rest of the movie. Precisely. There's also that yes. crunch at one point with that uh. cut. <laughs> uh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, the way that it ends with that. I mean, just... Just listening to that ergometer going, and then suddenly it's not, and you can hear the wrestling, and you're just focused on Amanda, who's asleep on the couch after downing a roofie. I mean, that was uh, that was some hardcore shit. I, I dug that. I dug the hell out of that. 
I do like as well that it doesn't go right to credits there. I, I think that final postscript, while a little bit too clean for my liking, is uh, is also an interesting uh, way to kind of come full circle. Uh, I, I think that if it would have gone directly to credits there for me, that would have been a little bit... I, I, I don't know. I, again, I'm getting stuck on the... <laughs> I'm getting stuck on this just being a debut that's taking from other things, and that's not a bad thing when it's done well, and it's done it well here. And I don't hate this movie right at all. After the couch, <laughs> I feel like it would have inserted an ambiguity that the movie is not striving for to begin with. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that like having it come out and say, "Oh yeah, she got away with it," is is more in line with the movie and what it's trying to do, like what it's what it's saying. I, I kind of um, like that she Olivia Cook's character has found a certain piece to at that rehab rehab center I believe I can't remember the exact language it's like they a use. psychological hospital yes yeah, uh, yeah there, but her finding a certain piece there and yeah just the way that last scene is shot too has a it has a really nice coda feeling do you um do you think that the reason that Lily says that she's happy that he didn't do it when she's talking to a uh, Tim is because she's like kind of trying to cover her tracks or is it because she's happy that she got to kill him himself herself? I think, I think she's blatantly saying that. Yeah. That she's happy that she got to kill him herself. <laughs> yeah. Cause yeah. I was like, you know, she may be doing like the whole, Oh, I'm glad that you didn't go through with it. It's like a tragedy that she did it. Or if she's like, offhandedly admitting to Anton Yelchin, like, I am so happy I got to put the knife in that guy. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think I think she's also, I don't know, I don't know what to read into whether, you know, she tells Anton Yelchin that she didn't, she didn't read the note, that she threw it away, but I think, I in my mind, I think she did, and I think she's playing it off as, you know, why the hell would I read the note from the person that killed my stepfather. Right. Um, and so I don't know. I think, I think what Olivia cook is doing there and kind of her, her phrasing and her, her language is kind of like, I think both, they both know that they are in better situations because of it in some sick way. Um, and so it benefited them both. You know, Olivia Cook was not an unwilling participant in that. I, I think there is a certain um, pleasure that Lily takes in kind of like lording over her social class in, in that last scene, which I did find uh, kind of interesting as well. Y- you know, like there is the snide thing that she says to Tim, like uh, moving up in the world. I, I think that's what she says exactly. I, I, and there is like a certain like level of pleasure she's taking in her own social class there in a way that she doesn't really for the rest of the movie, uh, which I think also is interesting beyond like the idea of whether she wanted to murder her stepfather as well. Hmm. I don't know. I, I think, I think we've uh, thoroughly explored this oh, movie. Fuck you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> And in the end, they were bred thoroughly. Oh, uh, 
Uh, the real thoroughbreds were inside us all along. Oh, here's something that we can discuss. Uh, the retitling of the film from Thoroughbred to Thoroughbreds. What say you? Yeah, I, I think that's just an awkwardly phrased, like, yeah, I, I can obviously see why it went with the S instead. Um, really? It rolls off the tongue a little bit better. I don't know. I think I, so. I don't know. Okay, oh, so you so think it's just a matter of, of, of just pure audience understanding, not necessarily a comment on the film itself? I'm curious because it, so like thoroughbred people would be like, Oh, is it because of the horse or like it, it might be, it might be viewed as more abstract. Well, it's the symbol. The horse is a symbol uh, right. pretty clearly. But the question is that, is it a symbol for Lily or is it a symbol for Lily and Amanda as the latter? Type sure. Of sure. Right. Exactly. And so, but my thing is like, so if you name something, um, thoroughbred, then it's like, oh, it may be that these two women are were bred thoroughly, if you want to put it that way. Like, it's it's more of an uh, an adjective than like a noun. But by doing thoroughbreds, you've suddenly made it a noun, and you've made it apply to them more. Ooh, yeah, yeah. So I'm wondering if their their decision was like, well, we've got these two girls up front. What if we call it thoroughbreds? And then that way people will be like, oh, they must be the thoroughbreds. Yeah, as opposed to getting... I hadn't even considered it as, as an adjective. That's solid. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm <laughs> here for. That's why you get an editor <laughs> of technical documents to talk about movies. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think, I think it's one of those things where like it maintains the meaning but like diminishes some of the ambiguity. Yeah, I think so. Interesting. Yeah. I didn't even know that they changed the name. That's yeah, they did it. Uh, it ran originally at Sundance as Thoroughbred. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Because it was about bread. It was a uh, it was a biopic of the man who sliced bread. Mm-hmm. There was only one uh, man in history who sliced bread. Well, a man who invented sliced bread. Obviously. Oh, right. He's the best. Um, yeah, and then it ends <laughs> with the title card that says, "Today we call it sliced bread." <laughs> those are those were on the t shirts that uh that they were selling in the lobby afterwards. <laughs> yeah, the t shirt said I'm the best thing since sliced since bread. Sliced bread, yeah. <laughs> All right. So and any now final I'm done. <laughs> any final thoughts about thoroughbreds? <laughs> Um, uh, oh, I actually I lied. I have one more thing to say, which is that I love the score for this movie so much. Yes, we talked about the, the, the score or or the or the kind of the soundscape that they they do because I, I'm a little confused on what what score is. Well, and when what, I say when I say like, score, I mean, I mean like the um, what score is it's the music, the hectic well, percussion. I mean like the really okay, the hectic. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love okay. it. I thought that was so great. And then also, um, this is it's featured prominently in the trailer, and it's at the one scene when they go to the party. But it also includes a song I like very much uh, called Sila by a group called Tribe Called Red, who are Canadian. They're all First Nation guys. And that song is, in the parlance of our times, a banger. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to call it fire. Oh, come on. No, I'm a little white for that, I feel like. <laughs> all right. Anyway, so, yeah. We're I did like that song, for too. That. <laughs> Michael wants more white people for that. Um, but only if they make more than $500,000 a year. Uh, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah, I talked about it a little up front in the non-spoiler section when I was comparing this to In the Company of Men. But yeah, the music in this is freaking fantastic. Very much like Krisha as well, going back to Krisha uh, a little bit. That would be a very interesting double feature, especially the fact that, you know, um, the way these two movies both use the contained space of a house as a sort of, you know, nightmare prison. Yeah. 
All right. Well, I guess I got to book that somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. I want. I still want my in the company of men and thoroughbreds. Uh, this would go along with a with a lot of stuff. I had a couple of friends who they do a podcast where they compare new releases to old films, and they initially. Oh, you know the people from the Last Picture Show. Indeed, yeah, yeah. we worked together back when I uh, lived in Chicago, and they were thinking about doing Heavenly Creatures, which I consider to be the closest reference point for this film, more so than Heather's, really. Um, But they ended up going with Diabolica by Chabrol. That was Chabrol, right? Yeah. Um, But yeah, it goes along well with a lot of films. I wrote the reason that I think I was brought on here is I wrote about this film in comparison to the other new release uh, called Flower. Oh, that was Clouseau, not Chabrol. I'm sorry. Um, Yeah. Yeah, a lot. It's, it's, I think, has links to a lot of movies. Yeah. I I was also thinking about Basic Instinct and Gone Girl. I wrote in my notes at some point, too. We also can't forget about Heather's and American Psycho, as the, (laughs) the poster tells us. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Oh, also. Oh, all right. Last thing that did bug me. <laughs> Sorry. Oh my god. There's an Ava Maria needle drop in this, and can we stop doing needle drops to Ava Maria? My rule. My rule is Ave Maria gets a pass if it is used for comedic effect, as it was in this film. Yeah, that's a that's a song that I don't think can ever be used non-ironically. So- which is, didn't Aaron Sorkin try to do it unironically in uh, the newsroom like two years ago? Oh my God. Wouldn't we surprise me. Start talking about that, I don't think. First of all, we need to spend the next 20 hours talking about the newsroom, just beat by mm. beat. Um, Brian, I just yeah. want to fix you. We're going to. Oh. Uh, I'm on a mission to civilize, <laughs> wow. Michael. Wow. This is going to pivot into a newsroom review podcast. Yeah, I've, I've been aching for that. For ever since I first saw that first episode, as a fan of television and a journalism major, and someone who's watched more Aaron Sorkin than someone who hates Aaron Sorkin should watch. R.I.P. The Will Twitter account. <laughs> uh, Will ACN. Um, first of all, I have seen the entirety of uh, Studio Sixty on the Sunset Strip at least three times. Studio Sixty on the Sunset Strip might be my favorite bad TV show. I'm not gonna lie. It's. It, yeah, it's like True it Blood exists, guys. <laughs> it is. I think it is. Um, while not worse than the newsroom, I think it is more fun in its badness than the newsroom is. That that scene. I'm hungry. Tom. That, that scene where Tom Jeter is talking with his dad about who's on first. That's exactly what I was thinking about. Yeah, that's like uh, the <laughs> the distillation of everything wrong with that fucking show. Anyway. So Charles and I are going to have an uh, anti-Aaron Sorkin We're going to jump onto the Studio 60 channel, and then you yeah. guys do your own thing. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so that's it for today. I uh, hope you've thoroughly enjoyed our discussion of oh. thoroughbreds, to uh, steal the pun that Bill made earlier. Uh, that's, uh, let's, uh, let's get out of here. Uh, Patreon.com slash the Film Stage Show. Give us your money. Movie.com. We do not have t-shirts for this movie, by the way. We should have t-shirts for ourselves. Yeah. That's brainy. Yeah. I'm, like, I'm still what? on bitches, guys. I'm <laughs> still looking at it. Bills would say, like, uh, I feel everything. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, man. Anyway, so let's move on. Uh, Patreon.com slash Show. Go there. Give us your money. Uh, movie.com slash Filmstage for a free 30-day trial of movie. 
which is going to have an independent Chinese documentary series airing. Uh, it's also got Mimosas, which it is uh, currently 10.30 a.m. Sunday on the East Coast. And uh, if you are not in the mood for Mimosas, I mean, that's what 10.30 a.m. on a Sunday is made for. Anyway, so that's, again, movie.com slash filmstage for a free 30-day trial to the best streaming movie service this side of the Mississippi. Um... I've apparently started to lose my mind, so let's get out of here. Let's tell the fine people at home where we can be found between now and the next time that we convene. Charles, you're our guest. Why don't you kick us off? Um, yeah, well, let's see. My work is all collected on Twitter. I'm, I'm on Twitter, Charles Bromesco, and uh, all of my various assorted writings uh, can all be found right there. All right. Bill Graham. You can find me wearing my Hawkeye t-shirt uh, headed into the Avengers Infinity War uh, premiere uh, over on Twitter at CableBFG. And you can also find me on the Patreon uh, Slack channel, mixing it up. All right, That's a joke, guys. <laughs> Hawkeye probably not in, in Avengers. That is <laughs> the greatest uh injustice that i could ever possibly foresee anyway mm-hmm. michael snydell definitely the right audience for this bill um <laughs> I, you can find me uh going on a shopping spree on bitches.com and uh, uh it's okay it's betches uh, all right yeah come all on right. that's don't that's hateful don't, don't slander first don't of slander. all now i really want to go to bitches.com <laughs> that is <laughs> okay i have good news I, I'm on Twitter at, at Snydell, and uh, oh, I just, uh, it will be up this week, but I, re- I interviewed Armando Anucci about his new film, The Death of Stalin, for the film stage. Nice. When does that movie come out? <laughs> it's already out. The fuck? All right, anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think. Yeah, I know that. Um, anyway, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Brian J. Rowan. My personal site, dearfilm.net, my writing at thefilmstage.com. And uh, yeah, that's it. So thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, for joining us. Um, and tune in next week when we're reviewing... I don't even know. I don't know. <laughs> we don't, obviously, we don't, we I think I've proved my incompetence with the release dates. Just come back. It'll be worth <laughs> it. Slide through my hands.